This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the latest out of Brantford. Uh, it appears that uh, waters are receding. To talk more about all of this, Cameron Linwood is with us, Communications Coordinator, Grand River Conservation Authority, and with us now. Cameron, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Happy to be there. Uh, so give us uh, the latest update, status, what, what's happening, where is this now? Yeah, so we're certainly seeing things begin to recede through uh, the community of Brantford. Uh, we're still watching the southern Grand Watershed. Um, obviously, flows are still elevated down sort of through uh, Haldeman County on out towards Lake Erie. Um, and flows are going to stay up there for uh, a good portion of the day. We're sort of seeing that uh, the final part of that peak that went through Brantford yesterday um, now head on down, down towards the lake. So we're uh, Things are looking better. We, we're seeing those flows drop. Actually, they've dropped uh, about a third since midnight through Brantford, so we, or last night through Brantford. So we're, we're certainly seeing the, the tail end of the river story through Brantford. So when did it peak, and at that point, how high was it? How dangerously close was it to uh, having a, you know, e- even uh, more damage occur? So it's, uh, Brantford was an interesting situation simply because of that ice dam that had locked in place. Mm. Um, and what we were seeing is when that ice jam did lock in and we were seeing sort of the, the dramatic footage of, of the ice coming over the top of the dike wall as well as some of the, uh, some of the water flows coming over the top of the dike wall, that was sort of, the, while that wasn't the highest flow point, that was when the water was backed up the most. Uh, we saw the final sort of peak go through Brantford, uh, sort of early yesterday afternoon, um, and that's when that ice jam finally let go. So that uh, that ice jam moving out of the way really provided a lot of relief to that community. So anything to be concerned of in the future? Is, is this an ongoing scenario with the ice, or is it pretty much free-flowing at this point, and until there's another freeze, there isn't an issue? Yeah, when we look at the, uh, when we look at the river system itself, all of the ice in that ice jam actually got deposited in the floodplain just south of Brantford. So uh, even even when we were looking at concerns of, of that ice and that debris moving downstream, uh, we, we really sort of dodged a bullet there because and, and lucked out because the, the ice chose to uh, to find a nice, uh, essentially a big open farm field to, uh, to place itself on. And uh, the river is generally free-flowing at this point. We uh, While you may see some, some large debris still go downstream, a lot of tree trunks and trees, um, the, the significant ice and, and stuff in the jam is not there anymore. As far as future freeze-up goes, I mean, we're obviously heading towards the tail end of winter. Uh, we are going to continue to watch the forecast, but uh, over the next week, we're seeing some great mild temperatures uh, during the day, some cooler temperatures at night, which is certainly going to help erode some of that ice. Uh, Cameron, I'm trying to visualize what happened with, the, you know, and as, as you uh, put it, a, a lucky break the way this ice shifted. I'm picturing like a, a holding area filled with ice, like almost having, well, we've all seen the pictures of what the river looked like with, with mounds of ice on it. And then all of a sudden the water level kind of gets so high that it, the first thing to go over is the big pieces of ice. And it shoves that into the field and out of the way as opposed to the water. Well, the way it sets up in Brantford, the river gets a little bit twisty down towards the southern end of Brantford. So where the ice was, uh, where the ice was damming up down there, it essentially filled the river channel. And uh, downstream of Brantford, the river gets very wide, and there's actually uh, quite a lot of floodplain area down there. So a lot of uh, the river is pretty flat down there, too. So um, the river has a lot of places to go. So as that ice jam was forming, the river actually ducked around and went across a field. And it's a relief area that we... Uh, we are aware is there, and we were hoping the river was going to channel that way, and it did. Um, as the uh, as the flows came up a little bit, and as that ice jam eventually released, uh, it came around a little bit more of a bend, and instead of the river channeling in that direction, it pushed the ice out of the way. Rivers will notoriously right. find their own way to go, but uh, in this case, it managed to push all that ice out of the way. The river returned back to the channel, even though it's still in the floodplain as far as the volume of water goes. Uh, the river went back to the channel and started flowing its own path. Wow. Uh, it must be fascinating uh, over and above the tragedy when people lose uh, property and such. It must be fascinating to see how Mother Nature takes over and then sort of corrects herself. We, we have had a lot of feedback uh, as far as questions on, on how ice jams can be um, either removed or corrected in the watershed. And I mean, at the end of the day, especially in the Grand River watershed, the, the best way to manage an ice jam is really to let Mother Nature do, do her due diligence on it and work away at eroding it and, and pushing it downstream. Again, when, when you see the pictures in the, the video of some of that ice, and you, just, you truly get a, 
a sense of what a significant force it is. When there are ice chunks that we're seeing on the landscape of the sides of the river now that are sort of taller than me, and I'm six feet tall, hmm. that are, are just incredible to think of, of where that came from and, and how big it actually was when it was in the river. So on that note, Cameron, what can you do for this? I mean, and lots were saying that, you know, you knew the ice jam was farther up the river. Why couldn't you do something then? I mean, is that the answer? Do you blow these things up? How do you control it? Yeah, certainly blowing up is not the answer. We uh, we focus in on the, the things we do every day when it comes to policy and development and um, also, a lot of our flood protection systems that are in play already. We look at our reservoirs upstream, and we have seven water control structures upstream that took in almost 80% of the flows that were coming downriver. So at this time of year, they're in their optimal holding level to, to reduce that flooding impact downstream, and we use them to their full advantage. Those reservoirs are very full, and that's why river flows are going to remain high for the coming weeks. But then we also look at the flood protection downstream. So the dikes that exist in Brantford, the dikes that exist in Cambridge, uh, they were built back at, in the 70s for a purpose, and they served their purpose this time. They Certainly situations within Brantford and those communities would have been far, far worse without those dike systems at play. Is there anything more that can be done to stop the, the areas that were flooded, or are they just low-lying areas close to the river, and that's what you sacrifice when you, when you have something in that area? Com- communities that are along the uh, river were built there uh, a long time before I was alive, obviously, and yeah. they... Uh, they were built in a floodplain, so there is there is the fact that we have to we have to simply work with nature in that respect. But we always take a review of the events after after something like this is passed. We always work with our municipal partners upstream and downstream to take a look and see what um, protection measures are in, pra- in place and did those dikes do what they should have done? Um, did our pre-warning system do what it should have done? And were our municipalities prepared? Were they they able to do what they did as well? So at this point, water receding, uh, people are allowed to go back, all roads and such, open bridges and such? Uh, my understanding from the municipality is they're still working through the process. I, uh, I did uh, understand from, uh, from the press conference last night that they've lifted the evacuation order, though I believe the state of emergency is still in effect. Um, and certainly our municipal partners downstream in Brantford and on down through the uh, southern watershed are going to uh, continue their due diligence as they clean up. So obviously there'll still be some places that are, you still got some water issues and utilities and such. Yep, we're going to, uh, obviously from, from the municipal perspective, they, uh, they're, this is now, it's really become their job to work on the up and they're going to work hard. I'm sure I know the, uh, we've, we've heard updates from the city of Brantford and they, uh, they got right on this one as far as cleanup and I know their utilities are going out there and getting people started up again today. Uh, what about infrastructure, Cameron? How bad was uh, was it affected? Whether bridges, what have you? Uh, how hard is this on infrastructure systems? Uh, I, again, there was a significant amount of ice in the river, and I do know the municipalities. Their first uh, their first order of business was fo- focusing in on that infrastructure. Uh, from our perspective, we have crews down there, um, and certainly will be down there in the coming weeks, looking at some of those dike systems to make sure that there was no. Uh, no significant erosion. These are earthen. Yeah. What does this part. do? What does this do to the riverbanks and erosion and such? It must just hollow everything out, doesn't it? Well, that's certainly something we're going to look at. Uh, right now, there's still a lot of ice sitting on those riverbanks, so we may have to wait a little while until we see some of that ice melt away before we can get a really good assessment. But uh, obviously, that ice can scour away some of those riverbanks. It can take away a lot of trees and things as well, and we've seen that debris go downstream. Um, when we look at our major reservoirs, our major reservoirs held strong, and they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And uh, we are uh, we are very reliant on that system. It's a very very sophisticated network as far as how the the dance goes between holding back that water and releasing that water. But uh, without that, those upstream reservoirs in place and doing exactly what they were supposed to do, this would have been a lot worse. There must be a, just tons of debris. Where does all of that end up? So with the, uh, I mean, if you uh, quick. A quick look along the riverbanks, and you'll see where a lot of that debris ended up. Um, where the ice jam sort of did push through in Brantford, there is a, a few large fields there. And I think, uh, while I haven't gotten a full assessment there yet, I do understand that a lot of that debris ended up in those fields. So it'll be a, it'll be a big cleanup effort. So what did you learn? Obviously, as you mentioned, your people will go over this as the thaw happens and such to analyze it. But short term, what do you learn from something like this? Uh, early warning is key, and uh, when when you're looking at sort of significant natural phenomenon like these ice jams, um, the fact that we were able to get a, get ahead of it and warn our, all of our upstream and downstream municipalities was a, a big one for us. We uh, 
our takeaway and the feedback we're getting so far is there was a lot of appreciation for the warning they got. We were mm. sending out messages on Friday letting people know that this system was at play and this was coming downstream. Um, as far as as far as takeaways from this, obviously we're going to look at the event as a, as a whole event and see how our communication systems work with our downstream and upstream municipalities and if we are getting the information to them in a timely manner and, and how they were receiving that information. So those are the big takeaways. We're really going to look at it, we're going to assess it, and we're going to... Uh, uh, certainly uh, be stronger for the next one because, well, Mother Nature does what she does, right? So have you ever seen anything like this before? Uh, certainly not uh, not the amount of ice we've seen uh, and the strength of the ice, and that was a big story. The uh, Just the way this winter has been with the, the significantly cold temperatures and the two thaw events we had in January to build up some of that ice, um, it really is a, a, a true, truly shocking and incredible sight when you see just the the amount of ice and really something we haven't seen in in many many years when did you realize this was getting out of hand when did you realize you know it's time to pull the plug here we got to start evacuating people uh so that was a that was a call made by the municipality again um we certainly had uh, staff down working with their their emergency operations center uh as we saw things break in cambridge um recognizing there was a, a large amount of debris downstream um, our, as soon as we saw our gauges change, uh, we were on the phone to the, to the municipality downstream in Brantford and they, uh, I believe they enacted emergency evacuation very, very quickly after that. So they were on top of this one. So, uh, everybody's back now. Uh, talk a little bit uh, about the water receding. Are there any dangers moving forward? Um, do you see something like this happening again in the short term? Uh, this is certainly a, a little bit early for uh, from the perspective of this kind of melt happening. I mean, we are still in winter here, and uh, that's something we pay attention to. Our reservoirs are quite full right now, and so we're we're going into a bit of a reset mode. So we're bringing those reservoir levels down a little bit, so we increase that flood storage capacity, so we're prepared for the next event. But at the same time, we also look at the forecast, and there's a, uh, while re- we recognize there's a little bit of rainfall in the forecast coming up, we're going to keep an eye on that. And obviously, we're going to look at sort of long-term outlooks now, too, and what, what we have to play with. Um, we lost a lot of that snow upstream, so we rely on that snow melt, usually in March and April, to fill our reservoirs. Well, now we've got full reservoirs and no snow up, upstream. So we have to, we have to really hmm. focus in on wow. the, the delicate balance. Yeah, that is a balance. Uh, and you think about it, it's still the end, of, uh, the end of February. We've got all of March to go, so you could easily get uh, more snow and winter conditions and uh, another spring thaw that, that, that uh, could do this again, I guess, later, another month from now. Is that, that, that's possible. It's, it, it's very possible. And, I mean, it's certainly the, the nature of the beast when you're looking at a, a spring in Ontario. The one thing that we probably do have the benefit of is, uh, the lack of ice in the river now, and that's that's something that we we will take uh, we will take for granted because we don't have to worry so much about those large large ice chunks because they have moved downstream or they have moved off to the side. Fascinating and, and interesting times. Uh, Cameron Linwood has been with us, communications coordinator, Grand River Conservation Authority, talking about managing uh, the big old Grand River, especially living in times that we are. Cameron, interesting, fascinating work. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Toronto Police held a press conference earlier today in regarding to the uh, Bruce MacArthur case. Here's what Detective Sergeant Hank Insigna had to say. Mr. MacArthur has now been charged with one additional count of first-degree murder. This new charge is in relation to the murder of Skanda Navaratnam. Skanda Navaratnam was 40 years old when he was last seen on September the 6th, 2010, in the area of Church and Wellesley. All right, joining us now, uh, Ross McLean, crime specialist, uh, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yeah, the never-ending saga here of this of this case, uh, Scott. You know, this one, uh, talking about 2010, uh, any idea how far these cases are going back or how far back they're looking? Uh, the detective made mention cases all the way back to 1970. My. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's, it, it's really something here as they're going through the methodical work here of putting together uh, all of the information about this case. I mean, this one is going to be so massive, Scott. I think you're going to find out of the uh, 
pardon the words for this, the post-mortem of this case, if you will, as they look at it, they're going to be finding new ways to sort of handle and investigate and search through and catalog evidence for cases like this so they can find some way of being able to do it. You know, you bring uh, up a valid point, and I had written down that question, Ross, uh, to ask you later, but obviously this is going to be ongoing. I can't see them anytime soon saying, okay, th- this case is, is resolved, we've, we, we've concluded here. Uh, this is obviously going to go on for a long period of time. What, what will we learn from this? Well, I think there's going to be a, a, a number of things we're going to learn. Uh, uh, two different sides of the coin. One of them is the, the issue of coming up of did the police miss something? Should they have been able to catch and get this person earlier? And certainly that's some of the community certainly feels that way, and there's, there's certainly a reason to want to feel that way if you've lost somebody through this to blame somebody. Even the detective realizes that. The question becomes, though, we have to look at our systems for how we catalog and work on cases. Because what you have, Scott, is just like we saw with the Florida shooting, with the, with the, the mass shooter down there. I mean, it, it ended up there was red flags everywhere. The kids knew, the teachers knew, uh, the police knew, the FBI knew. Everybody knew that this particular kid was a problem, but yet nobody was overall responsible for managing it. Mm. So the question becomes, when you have someone like this, and don't forget, we learned today that in 2003, this man... Uh, was was convicted of sneaking up behind someone who was a sex worker and beating them with a pipe. I mean, that is obviously horrendously antisocial behavior, and at the time he said he didn't really have a reason as to why he did it. So if that's the case with someone like that, how is it that they get to fall off the radar? They just become a tick box on a probation and parole thing later on or something, Mm. and then no, he's no one else's responsibility. I think... I think that's going to be some of what comes out of this, is how do we manage some of these people post-incarceration when they show very violent tendencies, and then how do we put together the clues and the cases on all of these uh, these missing people? So, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you suggesting that somehow this case back in 2003 should have raised red flags? Certainly, someone should have been responsible for keeping an eye on this guy post all of this. I mean, he got two years less a day. He was told to stay out of the gay village for a period of time. Well, why are you doing that? I mean, obviously, you think there's a problem with him. So, you know, maybe we need some better way of being able to clear someone at the end and be able to say, okay, we've at least gone over these things to see that they're no longer uh, a threat. Uh, you brought up the Florida shooter and how others had had noticed that and red flags had been sent up. Did anyone, did this guy draw attention to himself in any other way? Did anyone else say, hey, we got to watch out for this guy? Was, was there, were there any red flags? Uh, apparently, apparently so. There's, there's the, the report that in one of the cases of one of the men who was missing, uh, uh, a person he was having a relationship saw all of a sudden the poster of, was up that he was missing and knew that he was uh, at least an associate of, of Mr. MacArthur. And he reportedly went to the police and said, hey, look at this guy. I think he's got something to do with it. Now, the police are not answering as to they're not confirming that that tip actually took place or how it was dealt with, but uh, it w- that will be dealt with. That will be dealt with. I mean, the chief... Uh, Chief Saunders did launch an an investigation, a report, if you will, into how missing persons cases are handled. And I'm led to believe by someone I talked to on the force that it is really quite a big undertaking. They're really looking at this seriously. Um, how How did this draw attention this time? What is it that changed? What's different? What was different this time than in the past that all of a sudden, you know, people started looking at this person? Well, one thing the detective mentioned right off the top is when Mr. when Mr. Kinsman went missing, he was reported within 72 hours. So, you know, the time lapse between someone when someone goes missing and when they get reported, you know, it's just about all the time in criminal cases, Scott. You know, it's I call it sort of the magic 72 hours when you're looking for a missing kid or a missing person or a homicide has taken place that Something happens in those 72 hours that brings closure to it. When, when the trail is hot, if you will, and you can get on top of it and ask the right questions. So the fact that the police were hyper-aware that the report came in early 
on Mr. Kinsman allowed them to start uh, looking and focusing a lot tighter. How, how long a list is there of missing people in this community? I mean, is it? Why would this have not raised red flags in in the past? Like, you know, I mean, are, are, is the community walking around with a list of here's a whole swack of people and nobody knows where they are now? Well, there, there was actually an interview given by one of the detectives who was uh, in charge of the uh, the projects looking for the missing men and looking into it. And he indicated that, look, at, we had our theories that we were working on with the missing men. We we They certainly, and I'm told by other people who talk to law enforcement, that they certainly were looking at the theory of a serial killer or someone who was uh, doing this sort of thing, but... They, they could find no evidence right. other than the fact that the men were missing. Right. So the police are sort of hamstrung. They can't come out and just start announcing that there's a serial killer when they don't really have the grounds to be able to hold that to. There was no bodies, no evidence, no no other uh, things. You know, it was interesting, actually, the detective said as well recently that one of the tips they got, Scott, was about a cannibalism ring, believe it or not, hmm. that may have been operating in the area at the time. And the detective said they looked into that. It was discounted at the time. But that was another area. that. The, so the police were certainly looking at all those aspects. They might not have been telling uh, the public about it. You know, the uh, same as the police, you got a missing child. They're not going to just, oh, well, you know, start saying, well, it could be this or it could be that. No, you have to have something before you can talk about what it is you actually have. So what do these victims have in common other than being from the gay community? Is there any is there any lead there, any common denominator there? Well, on the cases that they have brought so far, the six first-degree murder charges that they laid, certainly we know that four of the men were of a type uh, that someone was looking for. Then the last two were sort of a little bit different, right. which isn't unusual with predators. Sometimes they, they will change their victims or their locations or their methods a little bit to throw, uh, throw people off. But the detective said today something that I found very interesting. He said that they've actually expanded the range of cases that they're looking at. They're not just looking at missing men from the gay village. He mm. said, we're looking at other un, uh, uncleared homicide cases. We're looking at other cases of sudden deaths that were reported. Maybe they weren't sudden deaths of maybe someone who fell off a balcony or something like that that happened that were written off before. So he says they're re-looking at sudden deaths, they're re-looking at other homicide cases, uh, and they're certainly obviously looking at all the missing persons records. So they've really expanded the range of violence that they think is possible for this man. Uh, how much do we know about Bruce MacArthur? Uh, you know, you look at him in a picture, he looks like an ever, average, everyday guy. Uh, looks like a pleasant man. What do we know about this guy? Yeah, well, the criminals who get away with most crimes the longest are the ones that you least suspect. They're yeah. the ones who get away with it uh, the longest, just in general. But, you know, something that I find quite troubling, I mean, when you look at the psychology, and certainly the police would have uh, earlier have brought in a forensic psychologist to look at the traits of the victims and those sort of things, and certainly one is uh, no doubt looking at everything about this man now. But uh, something that I found disturbing was apparently in his youth, when he was just a young child, uh, living uh, living at home with his parents. His parents were famous, apparently, for bringing in troubled and lost children. And people would send their children to his parents' homes mm. uh, when they were troubled from Toronto. They would go there and spend time with them. And they were almost like foster parents to mm-hmm. so many people. So certainly, I mean, we don't know anything at this point, but that certainly points to the direction that, you know, something else was going on in this man's life when he was young that got him uh, disturbed and mm. put him on this on this sick and twisted path that he's alleged to have committed these crimes. Other than that, no motives for the, for any of this at this point? Well, there, there could be a variety uh, here with, with this man, which which there may be more than one. Certainly, it appears, and we can't say, I can't say this conclusively, but certainly it appears that part of the motive appears to be sexual motivation, being a sexual predator. Yeah. But is it possible that other parts of them uh, were out of anger? Uh, and just straight control with with no sex involved, because we do have that one where he beat the man with the pipe, right. and we don't know anything other than that. So that's why they've really they've expanded what it is they're looking at with him. So it's uh, it's really something. Does he have family members in the area? Do we know anything about his history? Yeah, he's got a son who's before the courts on some different charges involved with uh, 
sexual harassment of uh, women and persistent phone calls, and oh he's my. before the court's being dealt with, um, an ex-wife. Um, so there are certainly some other people around that certainly the police will be talking to and finding out about. But, you know, typically, Scott, in, in order for someone to get this far off the social scale, uh, there had to have been uh, trauma yeah. that was never dealt with, yeah. uh, never managed. And we have to start looking at how we're looking at these people. Like, for instance, when he was up in 2003 in the courts, should the Crown maybe have taken a harder line with them about what they need to do when someone beats someone over the head with a pipe, yeah. as opposed to two years less a day, and sort of there you go and not much more to it? Uh, maybe it's time we find a better way as a society to deal with some of these uh these individuals that are lost. So uh, Toronto police are going to be working on this for a very long time. This is going to be ongoing. I, I think, and I'm not sure that I'm joking here or not, I think Detective Zinga may retire on this case. Yeah. I mean, if, they, if this goes on with... Uh, like if they're decides, talking about going back to the 1970s. Well, they're going to look at, and you know, it actually raises the, the issue that I know that the police are going to be looking at, of looking at artificial intelligence in databases because the problem is and we've talked about this before scott you've got all these different databases that don't talk to each other yeah you know you have uh, perhaps the the missing persons persons who aren't sitting and working with the homicide people all the time when you go to look for data what are you looking for you know perhaps there'll come a time when we're going to have artificial intelligence and they'll be able to take everything about this guy's history plug in his phone records his bank records his travel records and put that up against every police radio call, missing persons, his location, and just flag them all that way. Something that would take an incredible amount of human of human time and manpower to do on yeah. an individual basis. Good point. Uh, do we know if MacArthur's cooperating? The detective w- will not comment either way about that. That was the first question when I had a chance to ask him. I asked him that at the first press conference for doing it, and he said he did speak to him, but he would not talk about his level of cooperation. And, and I'll just say again, what makes a great detective, and I think that uh, Zynga is, at minimum, a very good detective, this may make him a great detective, is their ability to talk to people and to get people to talk to them. And I've seen some great cops do it before where we've had someone, I remember arresting somebody one time, Scott, wouldn't say anything about who he was or what he did, he wouldn't give us any ID. And a, a sergeant who, was, who used to be on the hold-up squad came in and started talking to the guy, and next thing you know, we had his name, his address, his date of birth, where he was, hmm. and it was all just through talking. Hmm. So uh, that's something we'll have to find out. What's his legal team going to do, Scott? They've got the disclosure now. They know that this man is facing, uh, if he gets consecutive sentences, a 150-year sentence. I feel very confident. I heard the detectives say it today that they're going to convict him on this. Yeah. He, he feels very confident. I talked to one of the lead forensic people off the record, and he says he feels very confident they've got all the all the information they need to convict him. So will they talk to him about cooperating more and working with the police? They're not going to be able to give him much. He's in jail the rest of his life if yeah. he's convicted at all or he pleads. But maybe they can find some way of, of getting him to resolve this to in some fashion. There's that potential. Unbelievable. Uh, what? Anything new on the Sherman case? Is there anything that you can tell us about that on how it's progressing? The forensics, uh, the private forensic people have done an, uh, uh, a very close inspection of the home. Uh, I know they've gone over it section by section, starting from the outside, working their way in. Everything is being cataloged. Interviews are being done. On the private side, they're looking at it. On the police side, we have not heard uh, much. There's been no update on the police side, other than we know where they would have been going. They seized a lot of uh, evidence from the home. I understand uh, hundreds of things have been seized from the home. They've looked at computers in the office, and so they've got people to go back and re-interview and look at. But we've heard uh, no breaks in the case, uh, even with uh, you know the one cousin making a lot of the outrageous claims in the media. Yeah, where did that go? Well, I think that is still going. He's not hes not under arrest. Yeah. So uh, is he being uh, looked at and considered still? I'd say you could bet your, your bottom dollar on that. Um, but the police are, are looking at it, and there's a, just a wide spectrum. If the police were not able to find within the, within the evidence when they first got at the scene of, of a real strong pointer in one direction or the other, you know, something like a note that's left that says this is, this is, this is payback for this... Uh, 
lawsuit or something like that or for stealing this drug information or something. If there was no real pointer for it, um, they've got a they've got a wide area of of investigation to be looking at. Are you surprised considering how high profile this case is that we haven't heard more? I'm surprised by just about everything that's taken place in this case. Yeah. I'm surprised by just about all of it, Scott, right from the time that, you know, that they were likely murdered on the Wednesday and then not discovered over Hanukkah until the Friday. Yeah. And then the way it was described by the police to start with and then the evidence we started to learn of, uh, there's, Every time I turn around, it's almost like progressive conservative politics in the province. Yeah, really. I mean, every time you turn around, there's something that doesn't seem to fit or, or you just don't expect. And uh, I don't know why that is. The fact that we haven't heard anything, does that mean it's complicated and they really don't have any suspects? Or does that mean that they're just keeping hush-hush about it and building their case? Um, all of the above, my, my, my spidey senses tell me they don't want to talk to anybody about what they're doing. And uh, I don't know. I think I think we do need to need to hear more. You know, even the private investigation has been quiet. We haven't heard from the family lawyer, uh, Mr. Greenspan. I haven't seen much out of him the last little while. So I think everybody is hunkering down, doing their work, and trying to run down uh, whatever investigative leads they have. The fact that there is a private investigation company hired by the family working on this, as well as the police, and, and you know, obviously the police are going to keep their information separate, uh, does that complicate this issue? Does it complicate the case? Uh, you know, it, it certainly makes it complicated is, is one word you could use for it. I think the fact that all of the private investigators, having been a former homicides and top detectives uh, with Toronto, I don't think that they're going to interfere or, or, or do anything that hurts uh, the police investigation. I, I think, in fact, I've heard it from some of their own uh, mouths of some of the investigators, one of which I knew from the police department, that they're, that they're working to solve this, that they're not on the opposite side of the police. They're on the side of solving it. So I don't think it's uh, an adversarial approach, even though it's certainly a competitive approach, I think, to try to solve hmm, That's an interesting choice of words. Uh, because, you know, and in the end, Ross, uh, the, the investigative company is going to give anything to the police. I mean, there's no sense coming up with who they think did it and not passing that information over, because in the end, it's the police that will lay the charge anyway, right? No, absolutely. In fact, I was outside the home when, when one of the cameramen noticed uh, uh, a, a diamond and Pearl appearing earring lying in the gutter at the end of the driveway of the Sherman home uh, and pointed it out to the uh, one detective who went over and he seized it just like a piece of evidence, photographed it, put on gloves, uh, picked it up, put it into an envelope, sealed the envelope, dated it, all that to preserve the evidence to be able to turn it over to the Toronto police so they could say what it is. And that may even just turn out to be an important piece of evidence because it, uh, from what I saw looking at it, it looks very similar to earrings that uh, Honey Sherman was seen to have been wearing in the past. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, uh, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Ross, as always, thank you for the time. Have yourself a great weekend. Thank you. You too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, cybersecurity on this and cyber warfare on this show. We've talked a lot about war and what's been happening in the world and how warfare is changing. Used to be uh, in the old days, it was about military hardware. It was about taking over territory um, and, and so on and so forth over the last centuries. Uh, a little bit different now. And we're certainly seeing this uh, evidence of it with the last U.S. election and, of course, uh, Ru- Russian interference in the election. We know that, uh, of course, it, it didn't. Uh, the interference didn't uh, didn't affect the results of the election, but certainly uh, there was lots of bias and lots of information out there that was directed and being manipulated from sources outside the country affecting the election uh, inside the country. There's nothing new here. It, is, it has happened in more places than just the United States. What about here? Could our democracy be threatened by total information warfare? Election coming up provincially, another one federally after that. How concerned do we have to be about all of this? A report from CSIS uh, paints a bleak picture saying it is easy to spread disinformation online. To talk more about all of this, Elizabeth Dubois is with us, Ph.D., Assistant Professor, Department of Communication, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. How bad, how big is this problem? Are we, uh, you know, we all seem pretty laissez-faire when it comes to social media. Are we concerned about this? Are we aware? Yeah, I think the awareness level is definitely on the rise. We are, as a society, recognizing that because we get information from a bunch of different sources now, not necessarily directly through traditional media channels, we have the opportunity to end up encountering information that hasn't gone through a rigorous journalistic process necessarily. And that's not always bad. In fact, many times it can be really good, but it opens up this possibility for disinformation to enter our media diet. So so what should we be afraid of? What's happening here? Explain it in such a way that the average person can understand what you're talking about. What's going on? For sure. So basically at the core of this is the idea that people now have access to tools that allow them to share information to audiences they never would have had access to before. The big threat that came out in this report uh, about uh, an academic workshop that CSIS hosted was saying foreign interference should be a major concern for us. The idea that foreign players, whether they're governments or individuals or other kinds of organizations, they might be able to target specific groups or specific people with information that is going to lead them to think one way or another on a particular issue, lead them to think one way or another on whether or not it's worth them going to the polls and voting, who they should vote for, those kinds of things. Are these sites, are these, uh, what's coming across on social media, are they disguised as legitimate sites? How do people fall for this? So this is the problem because the actual format is changing and sometimes it's relatively easy to identify and sometimes it's easy to be tricked by it. So there are instances where you see information that comes across your feed and it looks very much like spam and we have a media literacy at this point that we generally know how to identify what's spam and kind of ignore it. But there are other times when a website might look like a legitimate news site, but it's not. Or you might have an instance where a whole bunch of fake accounts have been purchased to uh, send the same kind of negative messages to somebody who's talking about a particular issue. And to that person, it just feels like they're being attacked. They don't know who it is or whether or not they're real accounts or whether or not they're coming from Russia or from Canada. And it just feels like, okay, I need to stop saying what I've been saying. I need to get out of this space because I'm under attack. So this is fake news, despite what Donald Trump says. This is what most are referring to as fake news. Yeah, I think... Disinformation as, as opposed goes, to someone like Donald Trump who says anything, anybody that doesn't agree with what I'm saying is fake news. We don't want to confuse that. But this is actually making up of uh, spreading of facts that are biased or untrue, sending them to unsuspecting participants who feel it's um, authorized. Yeah, so... I like to think of it this way. Fake news is one part of this. And when I say fake news, I mean that pretending to be news even though you aren't. And so pretending to have all of the support of journalistic integrity and then not actually having done the work to get there and having facts that are not actually facts. But there are other parts to it, too, like uh, creating bots or automated software agents that can pretend to be humans to send information. Now, those... Twitter accounts that are automated, they aren't necessarily sharing information in a way that it looks like news. They are simply sending supportive or or antagonistic messages to people who are already discussing an issue, which is a little bit different, but part of this whole disinformation ecosystem that we're worried about. And of course, with these social media sites, they obviously cultivate material generated towards your interests and shove it all in that direction. Yeah, different social media sites work in different ways, but generally social media sites have uh, a personalization algorithm. And so Mm -hmm. they're trying to feed you information that you are likely to like and click and share uh, and That's helpful in a lot of ways because there's so much information in the world, we can't all individually go through it ourselves. Uh, But it also means that 
things that are maybe sensational, uh, things that seem unbelievable, end up getting clicked a whole lot more, and so then they get fed to us a whole lot more. How do we combat this? Do we create a a culture that that identifies it? That that you know some have suggested in a game sort of uh, sense that y- y- we start attacking them. How do you combat this? It's a tricky question, and there are a lot of different answers. I would argue that all of those answers are partial because it's really about. Do you inspire the- citizens to go after them? So what I think we need to do at a base level is make sure that citizens understand that this is happening and that we all get just a little bit more literate of how algorithms work and how information can spread and how it's not necessarily true just because we see it a whole bunch of times. We also need to have our government make sure that our existing laws are enforceable, and sometimes that means regulating companies making sure that Facebook and Google and Twitter and the like, if they're going to operate in Canada, they need to make sure that they are able to give us the information we need to enforce our existing laws. And so there's a whole bunch of pieces to this puzzle. Definitely being aware is a really important first step. You talk about so many pieces to the puzzle. Is this just too big to control? So the idea of controlling information entirely... Or monitoring it, even that matter. Control is probably too strong a word, even monitoring it. Yeah, so here's the thing. We don't need to monitor all information or have some entity that gets to decide what is true and what is not true. Yeah, all of a sudden you get something on your screen with a big X through it. Right. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that with the technology we have, Elizabeth? I don't get this. Well, so this is the thing. As technology has been developing, we've gotten pretty good at identifying commercial spam, and we've created, uh, platforms have created algorithms to identify it and minimize it or make it so that it doesn't show up in people's feeds very frequently, even if it gets clicked on. And governments have created anti-spam legislation. We've gotten really good on the commercial side. We haven't figured out the political side yet, Mm. but there are technical capacities that are being developed. So I think if we keep talking about this and keep recognizing that this is potentially a threat, we're going to be able to put the pressure on, on these companies and on government in order to make sure that we are responding in a helpful way. We all know how technology is advancing so quickly. Is this a generational thing? In other words, uh, there's only a small window before people really start to get this, and the next generation will figure this out. Yeah, I don't even know if it's going to take a whole generation. Yeah. Already there are studies, unfortunately not in Canada yet, but in other countries like the U.S. and the U.K. that are showing that people are losing trust in social media, that people are second-guessing and fact-checking information they're seeing on social media, and that people are rarely convinced by this so-called fake news, and people are getting better at identifying bots or, or assuming that followers are sometimes fake. So we already see people becoming aware of this and making it uh, seem a little bit less threatening. Well, there was even a piece a couple of weeks ago from one of the major companies, whether it was Lever or Unilever or Procter & Gamble, that were saying that, you know, if you can't control where our ads are going to be placed next to, we're out. And I mean, you think once advertising jumped on this platform, Uh, you know, forget it. I mean, they're just taking off. And and eventually, uh, if people start speaking with their dollars, I mean, it's going to demand changes. I mean, they even said until the swamp is drained, they're not going back on social media. They're not going back on internet. So uh, at the end of the day, is this Mark Zuckerberg's problem to figure out? I can't, I I don't think that we can leave it to to Facebook to self-regulate or any other company for that matter to self-regulate. I think they definitely do need to figure out, and I think you're right, there are economic incentives that are becoming more and more uh, present and, and obvious. But we shouldn't assume that a big multinational company that's based in the U.S. is going to know exactly how to uh, create their system so that it preserves Canadian democracy and so that it serves our public good. Laws are different in all different kinds of national contexts. And so at the end of the day, we need our government to be 
aware and participating in this discussion and at times imposing regulations so that we can be sure that we're preserving the public good. Does cyber warfare level the playing field? You know, at one time during war, whoever had the most tanks, the most military hardware, budget, whatever, they won. It's different now, isn't it? You know, I think over history we've seen that every every war has evolved and technology has played a really important role mm. in in who has what kinds of advantages. Uh, and I'm not an expert on cyber warfare. I look a lot at political opinion and how, how media environments affect that. But I would definitely say that there is no end result of this technology. It's not like we've gotten to this point and it's not going to continue to evolve. People on all sides of any conflict are going to continually be advancing and trying to figure out the next thing that their opponent doesn't already know. Uh, you know, uh, we're in Canada. We, we got uh, America right next to us. Shouldn't we be the best at this? Why are even Chinese or Russian hackers, how are they even getting in? Aren't we smarter? Aren't we better than them? You know, I, I don't know the technical aspects of this, mm. but from my understanding, it's not necessarily... Uh, that the technology has been all that advanced in terms of the ways that information has been disseminated. It is figuring out how to kind of game the system in terms of what will spread on social media and what won't. And that is something that can be done from anywhere. It's almost like we have, it's almost like we're 15 or 16 and someone's just given us a brand new car and we have no idea or just really a sort of half an idea how to drive it. <laughs> Perhaps. When uh, will we catch up to, will our knowledge catch up to the technology? I think Because it almost seems like the Wild West in some areas. You know, and, and it's easy to kind of read a report like the one we just saw come out of this workshop from CSIS uh, and, and be afraid and, and to be alarmed by how this idea of, like, how can others be so far advanced and we're not. It's important to remember, though, that uh, just because there was Russian interference in the U.S. election doesn't mean that um, there necessarily will be, you know, democracy-ending problems in our election mm -hmm. coming up. We have the benefit of being able to look back on what happened and improve and try and fix things. And that's something that people in government, people in private industry, and people in civil society are all working towards right now. So we are on the cusp of another election provincially and, of course, eventually federally again. How concerned are we about this? I mean, there's lots of other... I think France said that there was interference in their election as well, the UK. So how are we fit to monitor this? Or... Does anybody care about Canada's election? Yeah, so we have definitely uh, strategies that are being put in place in terms of having conversations about what are the risks, trying to figure out how to identify those risks before they become detrimental. Definitely the response to revelations about interference in other elections have prompted Facebook and Google and others to start modifying their approach and start trying to find solutions to these problems. And uh, the integrity of our election is something in Canada is something that these companies uh, do feel the need to address. Uh, whether or not they're doing it fast enough or clear enough uh, or completely enough is, is another question, but steps are being taken. That said, the, the reality is Canada as a world player is not the same as the U.S. as a world player. Having uh, a major influence over who is the president of the U.S. is not the same as having a major influence over who is the premier of Ontario. And I personally think that we probably need to spend a bunch more time thinking about how people on the ground, whether it's in Ontario for the Ontario election or across Canada for the next federal election, uh, how are third parties, for example, going to be using these same tactics that yeah. have worked mm -hmm. for foreign players 
domestically. You know, you bring up a very valid point. You know, we're always fighting about the third party uh, contributions at elections and how much power they should have and, and what the rules are for them. Now you could do that and it would be totally, un- it, would, it could be disguised, could it not? Yeah, it's it's very easy for third parties to buy advertisements, to potentially purchase bots, to influence public opinion in different ways using these technologies, and we don't have good ways of tracking it. That's one of the things that I think... Uh, we really need to pressure Facebook to to make available, as well as other companies, but Facebook's the example that comes to mind because they're just so popular and so used. We need to make sure that election advertisements are all tracked and that information is made accessible to elections officers so that we can track the information and enforce our laws. Considering what Facebook has the capability of doing, and and obviously it was designed to socialize, it wasn't designed to do this, but would it be that difficult for them to manage and police this? Would it be that difficult, or is the system just not set up for that? You know... Because you think of what we can do, you think, well, why can't they do that? Yeah, so some problems are much more complex than others. But in general, the way these social media companies have been developed and and how they continue to exist and thrive is that they are constantly changing in response to the needs of their customers. They are constantly uh, experimenting and finding new ways of delivering information and finding new ways of helping people to connect. And so the idea of whether or not Facebook can currently do it is is not as big of a concern to me. It's whether or not they can commit the resources to eventually doing it. And I think when it comes to something like election advertisements, that can't be an up in the air, oh, is it possible? It, mm. it has to happen. So what advice do you have for the public who's trying to process all of this? Yeah, so I think for the public, the big thing to remember is when you are consuming any sort of political information, you need to be critical of what you're seeing. And being critical doesn't mean assuming that everything is terrible and you can't trust it at all. It means looking at who's the source, what are they saying, what was the date, is there a date, is there a specific author that this is attributed to, can I understand this from another perspective, can I find anyone else who's talking about this and do they seem to agree? And those kinds of practices, asking yourself those questions when you encounter information, it helps you become a much better consumer of political information and news and equips you with, uh, with tools to inoculate yourself against disinformation to a certain extent. It doesn't solve all of the problems. Media literacy isn't going to just cure all of this, but it definitely is a good first step. And don't forget, Alexa is always listening. Of course. Google, my kids are always asking Google something. It's like, really, should we have this in the house? What is going on? I've lost control. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Dubois has been with us, PhD, Assistant Professor, Department of Communications, University of Ottawa. Fascinating stuff, Elizabeth. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.